0: Welcome to the Indy Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent, where a nonprofit news site can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined today by two of our reporters, Megan Messerly and Riley Snyder. Say hello. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hi, you guys. So it was, again, a busy week uh, uh, in in the world of, of politics and government with the big story again dominating uh, the headlines and, and our, our own Senator Dean Heller being right in the middle of it, uh, Megan, and that's the health care repeal or not to be repealed. Uh, there may be a vote next week. There may not be a vote next week. What happened this week?
1: Yeah, so so this week discussions continue. There's been a lot of back and forth among Senate Republicans about exactly what's happening now. Um, the, the president has been kind of back and forth about we're just going to leave the Affordable Care Act in place and let it fail. And then he changed his mind and said, no, we need to take some sort of action on it. He had a, a, a lunch meeting uh, with senators this week where, where he's trying to figure out what, what could get done on the bill. And like you mentioned, our Republican Senator Dean Hill has been in the middle of it all, uh, still undecided about how he would vote um, on this motion to proceed, which basically would continue debate um, on the bills. And so he has been pretty mum so far, (laughs) to say the least. Um, And we also had two reports come out from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, um, which – basically analyze the the two different proposals we have on the table right now, which is the current draft of the Better Care Reconciliation Act, which is the Senate Republicans' repeal and replace bill, and then also this other piece of legislation that would um, essentially repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so the Congressional Budget Office released its analyses of both bills um, Of just the repeal bill, it said that 32 million Americans would lose insurance. Um, It would double premiums over the next decade. Uh, So not super great numbers that came out on that one. And then... um the analysis of the, of the BCRA, the repeal and replace bill, uh, showed that 22 million Americans uh, will still lose health insurance. That's the same number, basically, that was projected from the original draft of the bill. Although uh, it did say that the the new version of the bill would help reduce the, the federal deficit by about $100 billion additional billion than than the previous version of the bill did.
0: Uh, maybe we should explain a little bit, and I know you know more about this than most people I know. When you talk about 22 million, 32 million not having health insurance, insurance. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that they're going to immediately lose coverage, that they would be put in a position where they couldn't afford coverage? What does it mean that they would lose the insurance?
1: It's a combination of everything, right? So it's people who would lose Medicaid coverage, who would only be covered through Medicaid and probably aren't able to afford it otherwise. Um, It's people who premiums go up so much that they're no longer able to afford to purchase it. Um, It's a combination of all the different factors. So it could be everything from people just the the individual mandate would be gone, so people would no longer be required to purchase it insurance. They just don't see the benefit of it. They think they're healthy enough. So it's a combination of all those different factors.
0: So it's obvious, I think, to people that if you just repeal Obamacare straight up, that people are obviously going to lose coverage that they gained under Obamacare. Is there anything that's been proposed? Because we don't know what they're going to vote on next week. And even uh, we we are recording this podcast on on Friday afternoon, even this morning at the briefing, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders could not say what they will be asked to vote on, what the bill will look at. But is there any kind of repeal and replace that could that they could do that would not knock some people off of health care.
1: I mean, they haven't presented that version of the bill. Right. I'm sure if they could find that version of the bill, that would repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. The fairy save, dust bill yeah, or Save the else. federal government money and result in all Americans still having health insurance. I mean, I'm sure that would be the ideal version of the bill. Um, I think it's also worth noting that Republicans and um, the administration have pushed back against the Congressional Budget Office reports um, saying that's not what they think is going to happen. Um, I mean, Republicans ideally would like the situation where people maybe lose um, coverage through the exchange or lose coverage through the. Medicaid, but are able to somehow get covered through employer-sponsored coverage, um, the CBR report does take that into account, um, but it still doesn't account for all the other losses that we would see.
0: I mean I I guess uh, what, what puzzles me about that and uh, I hated economics in college so I'm not going to claim to, to be an expert in economics but I do understand risk pools to some extent and the whole thing doesn't work does it uh, if, if so many people decide not to buy insurance which is what I've heard Paul Ryan uh, say the, the the House speaker the, you need to have this huge risk pool otherwise the whole the whole thing doesn't work right
1: right so that's one of the questions that came up um, specifically with Senator Ted Cruz's amendment he had this amendment that would basically allow 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 uh, insurance providers to offer um, sort of scaled back coverage plans, high deductible plans to people who want them as long as they provide one ACA compliant plan that covers all these benefits and what have you. Um, But you bring up the interesting point of risk pools. Um, The whole point of the individual mandate was to sort of ensure that everyone's getting covered. If everyone's getting covered, you sort of uh, minimize the risk. And that includes a lot of young people. Um, Young people are generally healthier. They're cheaper for insurance companies to cover. And so if you have the young, healthy people in the same pool as the really old, sick people who need cancer treatments and what have you. um, You're going to sort of balance everything out. And the idea is that, okay, maybe when you're young, you're paying really high premiums or what seem like really high premiums to you when you're not really accessing the healthcare system. But eventually when you're 65 and you need health insurance, you are now able to access that coverage and you're still paying the same premium as you were when you were 25.
0: That, of course, is why we have a very low ceiling for the age you can be to work at the Nevada (laughs) independent. because because of these arguments. (laughs) Riley, when we become a more... Sophisticated podcast will actually play more clips, and I would love to have the ability to play the clip of, 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 of uh, uh, President Trump and Dean Heller, our senator.
2: I can what, do impressions if can you, you want. Can, you, can, <laughs> can you do,
0: well, what would the impression? What, I mean, what's the best description of that, Riley? Was it a hostage video? Was it like forced laughter? Because Dean Heller was essentially laughing while the president uh, was essentially threatening his his career. Was he not?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of um, like political moving parts, as you know, regular listeners know. There was the Super PAC associated with a lot of Trump people that ran ads for basically 24 hours in Nevada asking Heller to change his vote. They ended up pulling that. But at this luncheon, um, the president said, you know, this guy, he wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? And Heller had like a really awkward laugh and kind of like a ooh. Uh, so, yeah, he was putting him in an awkward public spot. It remains to be seen how much influence or, or what uh, Trump wants to do specifically in Nevada against Heller. I talked to Danny Tarkanian this week who said he hasn't been reached out to anyone from Trump's camp. He'd be the most likely primary... Opponent against Heller that I could think of. He has
0: said he's thinking about it, but you also, I think you tweeted that when you talked to him, that he said he's, and I've seen this elsewhere too, I think, he's saying to people that he's leaning towards running for the same district he ran for last time.
2: Yeah, so as Danny put it to me, uh, his main goal was to kind of take out Jackie Rosen. I think he's still really bitter about that race. It's probably the closest he's come in a high profile race to winning. He lost by one point. It was a
0: 4,000 votes, something like that, right?
2: Yeah, and, you know, Danny has his strengths and weaknesses as a candidate. um, And And he's
0: suing her too. We should tell people. Mm-hmm. That there's a pending lawsuit. He sued her for defamation. He's done this before. He actually got a settlement out of Mike Schneider uh, in a state senate race for a similar issue.
2: Yeah, from the 2004 race when I was probably in uh, single digits. But
0: we, we don't want to hear about that. You would have been cheaper on insurance than even then. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, uh, Danny's big thing was, um, you know, if I have a lawsuit and I'm running against Jackie Rosen, that's going to help me a lot more in the general election. He said he was really more inspired to run against her. For the Senate race, nothing really much to do with Heller. I think you understand there's a lot of grassroots pent-up anger against him, but you know we'll, we'll see what he decides to do. He's been on vacation for a week and a half in San Diego, so I think when he gets back next week, he'll probably have a decision coming soon.
0: And there was also, uh, I believe, an interview that Dina Titus has done. She's done a couple of interviews now. One was on MSNBC. Dina Titus, the other congresswoman who has said she's thinking about getting into the primary against Jackie Rosen uh, for, for the right to face uh, Dean Heller, that, that that vote that Dean Heller makes next week, assuming there's still a vote, we're all saying there's going to be a vote, we don't know, uh, that that's going to play a big role in whether she gets into that race, right?
2: Yeah. So she went on MSNBC last weekend and I finally found the clip. Um, <laughs> of, of She said that it will play a role because, you know, th- there's a lot of, it's July of an off year. So I think things get kind of blown up in importance, but this is pretty important. This is probably going to end up defining a lot of how the Senate race and how Dean Heller's reelection bit goes is how he decides to vote and what he does in the next two weeks. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure Dean is thinking about it, you know, that's a, it's a safe house district. She'd have to give up to to make that bid, um, you know, she's run statewide before and hasn't done too well. She lost uh, the governor's race to to Jim Gibbons in two thousand six. Um, so. A lot of things going on in, in a lot of different political camps.
0: Do you remember that 2006 race uh, very well, Riley? How you uh, I do not because I think I was 12 and living 12, in California. 12, 12. Oh, but you wouldn't have been interested just because you're living in California? No, what? no. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I guess what, what I'm wondering, Megan, is, and, and, and uh, I, I, uh, sh- I read this interview that Dean Heller did. He is clearly just trying to avoid taking any stand after – what is it, three weeks today? Is it from that press conference or something uh, with something. Brian Sandoval? The time time goes so fast. At
1: the end of June. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it was three weeks a month ago, uh, about uh, that, that, he had this press conference with Brian Sandoval saying he was against any bill. Uh, uh, and he talked about a specific bill at the time that, that would kick hundreds of thousands of Nevadans off health care, tens of millions of Americans. And he also, uh, I think he used the word lying, say they're lying that if, if, if they say your premiums are are going to, to go down. And then he did this interview uh, uh, with a, a reporter, I believe from Axios this week, in which he was, I, I don't know, he said he was undecided in so many different ways, said he would give a different answer to a different kind of person if, if, if a voter asked. I mean, it was a very bizarre interview in terms of the ways that he, the lengths that he wanted went to say nothing, so he clearly doesn't want to take a position, although it would seem to me that based on what he said at that press conference, that he's left himself very little wiggle room for anything that's proposed, even though, I have to say this, he voted for a repeal bill in 2015 that was harsher on Medicaid, uh, uh, phasing it out in two years, than the current one.
1: Right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's exactly the 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 place he finds him in right now is that you know he's he's not you know a, a fan of the Affordable Care Act necessarily, but you know he doesn't want to see. Um, a bunch of Nevadans lose Medicaid, uh, coverage under Medicaid. He doesn't want to see premiums go up. And it's it's hard when, like you mentioned at that press conference, he said, you know, I don't, I'm not going to vote for a bill that takes health care away from, you know, millions of Americans and millions of Nevadans. And then you have these reports coming out that say that it would do just that. I, I think that puts him in a very difficult position um, but at the same time it's sort of this this policy versus politics you know um, you know when so many Republicans have have campaigned on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act um, what do you do when you're not voting for that what does that what does that mean to your constituents well,
0: a little a little later we're going to give everyone who's listening a preview of, of a couple of stories that you're both working on for for the weekend that uh, the one is politics and one is one is policy and uh, that'll be on the Nevada independent uh, uh, website the nevadaindependent.com there was another Uh, A fairly substantial political story that broke this week from the legislature, uh, Riley. Uh, Maybe it shouldn't have been that surprising, uh, but uh, 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 a state senator resigned. What's the story there?
2: Yeah, so State Senator Mark Menendo, the saga's finally over. Uh, (laughs) He announced his decision to resign this week on Tuesday night. Uh, This is following a a long series of reports of uh, alleged sexual harassment. I think they interviewed around 55 or 56 women on this um you know that's sort of been a long time coming this isn't the first time that these allegations have come up a similar report was done in in 2003 against then assemblyman menendo so uh you know he's out of the state senate um assemblyman james ornshaw who's termed out of the assembly announced he's going to run for that seat you know just a few hours or it seems like a few hours later so uh this is something that happened kind of in mid to late session He was admonished on the floor of the Senate. It's already become a campaign issue. I did a fact check on uh, Senate Minority or Majority Leader uh, Aaron Ford, who's you know rumored heavily interested in running for Attorney General, and the the whole how the Menendez saga has sort of played out is still political fodder in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff you just said there. So uh, let me ask you some follow-up questions, sir. Uh, I, I guess what, what I'm wondering about is is the way that this, this just suddenly happened. They announced this. The Senate Democrats announced this. Says, I think they said there had been, uh, uh, I think, 14 incidents that had been confirmed during dur- during the last session. You mentioned that these allegations have been made before. I think some of I'll go all the way back to 2003. And, and, and uh, but they're really, what was really surprising about this maybe not is how tight-lipped the democrats are about did they confront him about this did they force him to resign how this all came about right
2: yeah there hasn't been too much you know sunshine in the process of how this all has come down i think it's put a lot of democrats in a very awkward spot cuz they kind of ran on being the progressive party trying to support equal rights for equal pay they have a very diverse caucus and yet you have a straight white male who's been accused of harassing women for the last he's been in office since Basically, since I was like four years old, to continue with this theme of uh, making you yeah. seem really young. Um, so yeah, you know, at the end of this
0: podcast, based on all the clues, we people are going to have to can call in and say how long, how old is Riley right now? Yeah, recorded call-in show. <laughs> uh. exactly. exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, you know, uh, in terms of. Um, this whole process in Menendo, it's been a little frustrating just not being able, to, they're they not releasing the report publicly. We've requested to, to We've see We've written a, a letter
0: to try to get it. Uh, I, I've not heard back yet, but we're supposed to, the LCB is preparing a letter. The fact that they're taking so long, I would guess is not going to be a yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I understand and it's absolutely valid for the women who have come forward to have concerns about privacy. Um, but, you know, this is something that's gone on for a long time and to have this report done uh, and and not be made public, even though he's resigning over it. Uh, you know, there's, I think, a couple tens of thousands of people in his state senate district that won't have representation between now and the the 2018 election. So, you know, do they deserve a reason to know? We, the, the, these are questions. That's why we, I think we're requesting the the report.
0: I think you tried to do some interviews, didn't you, Megan, with some of these women uh, uh, who who have come forward? Or, or and, and it is it's a very uncomfortable thing uh, for. Uh, some of these women to come forward because they're involved in the legislative process. Uh, they they, e- they either were, were interns or lobbyists themselves. Uh, and, and so uh, you had trouble getting people to talk, right? Not, not surprisingly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, we did expect that going in. Um, you know, we, had, we talked and ended up talking to some people, but a lot of it was was off the record or on background, as you might imagine, just because it's so sensitive. Um, people don't want their names associated with it. It's, it's even hard to some talk to someone on background, right? Because you start telling a story and there's so many identifying details about I was here with these people and just, you know, it's such a small world at the legislature that, um, you know, once some of those details start getting out, you can easily put two and two together and like you mentioned, there's a a lot of fear, I think, about coming forward with these kind of things, not just here at the legislature, but um, in general, there's a lot of reasons that people might not want to report something that's happened to them Um, and and I think that's that's honestly why a lot of this has taken so long, you know, we mentioned this has been going back, you know, more than a decade Um, it's been hard to get people to come forward and want to report and want to tell their stories and, and put that out there. Um, especially as uh, uh, Steve Sibelius reported, you know, um, Senator Menendez actually contacted one of the witnesses and, and tried to pressure her to recant her story. Um, so, you know, once once the ball starts rolling, once people start talking, you know, pe- people kind of know who's talking. And, and I think um, there's a lot of fear about what could happen if, if someone is associated with all of this.
0: And that a- attempted coercion of a witness or however you want to describe it was mentioned in the final report. From what I understand, this is a tough, one though, and and uh, because as as someone who generally believes in in the right of the public to know about a public publicly funded report paid for uh, by taxpayers of somebody, as Riley mentioned, those the, his constituents have a right to know. I think everybody probably has a right to know versus the point that you make is that it's a relatively small state. That process is a microcosm of a relatively small state that even if we got the names redacted, some of the people could probably be identified. And so it's it's a tough call for me as, a, as both a journalist and a human being. I don't know how you feel about this. And obviously, uh, you're the only woman sitting here. Uh, but But this is a uh, definitely, I, I talked to one woman already, who I told that we had requested this, who, who who had been interviewed, and and she was like almost mortified, like wow, they could find out, you know. But but it's it's tough, public right to know versus these women do deserve some protection still, even though Menendo will have no power over them.
1: Right. Yeah, and I don't know exactly what what was said to these these women and individuals who came forward to report. You know, if they said this is all going to be confidential, none of it will ever get out. I, I don't know in what sort of terms they framed it in. Um, But it would really have to be the sort of most broadest of generalities that they they released if they released anything saying, you know, he's accused of saying X to this person or he's accused of making a a comment, you know, it would have to be really general because I think as soon as you start putting dates and locations or sometimes even the the comments of what was said, you know, a a lot of people have heard stuff here and there and people can start... um, Putting things together, and and so you know, it, I think it would be really hard to release much of anything, you know, without giving away someone's identity.
0: And and the problem is is, is that even though we could make the argument that we believe we'd be responsible and how we would handle this, and we wouldn't want the women to be identified, no one likes us really, and no one's going to trust us. They're going to think we're going to sensationalize it. I still think I I I err on the side of this is a guy who did this for so many years. So many women have come forward that the public has a right to know for a variety of reasons, not just to know what the specifics of this behavior were so they can see why he resigned but you know to show that through the years he really was enabled by the leaders of that caucus and 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 his party right both caucuses in the assembly and the senate because it sounds like this stuff's pretty egregious right
2: yeah and again this has been going on for years and years and years in 2003 when this happened a report was produced um and then assemblyman menendo had his uh, you know committee chairmanship uh Stripped from him, and he would no longer held any committee chairmanships until he left and went to the state senate. And then, yet, this session he chaired transportation for all but the last two weeks of it. Um, so it was, you know, it was 12 or 14 or however many years later. Um, I'm not good at math, that's why I'm in journalism.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, it's like, come on, there's, there's no consequences from what happened in 2003. This came up, I think, in 2007 and 2009 to a lesser extent. And sort of, you know, people turned a blind eye because it's Carson City and it's far away from the population center. Um, And there's just, it's a very insular bubble that, you know, we've all reported on and kind of had to live in for, for six months. And I think the more light that can be shined on that process, the better.
0: You mentioned something, uh, last thing I want to talk about on this topic, but it's, this is not going to go away either because uh, the Republican Attorneys General Association has already been trying to use this against Senator Ford. We should say that uh, Senator Ford, uh, toward the end of the session, as you mentioned, decided to have uh, uh, the Legislative Council Bureau, uh, their their lawyers there, hire an outside firm to do this investigation. Uh, he, he promised there would be some action after this. The that came after the session although he did admonish him as you mentioned on the final day of of the session but they're clearly going to try to make this an issue okay. saying uh, that 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 ford did not handle this right and you mentioned you did a fact check on that already
2: yeah and it's sort of hard to determine you know the the balance between his due process rights and sort of how it all ended up because i don't think that you could have made these determinations when it was first happening you know, he did strip him of the committee chairmanship. He had the public admonishment. They, And literally the last 10 minutes of the session changed the rules in terms of uh, reporting on sexual harassment. So there were steps taken. You know, the Republican attorney generals, they're going to nitpick and they're going to try and find uh, – to, to use this basically as fodder. They have a website called like Radical Aaron Ford, and this is one of the – uh, three or four areas they, they tried to attack him on. Um, but in, in terms of the process, you know, he was the first one to request an outside report. He, he took the steps to kind of deal with it.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is a difficult issue to to attack forward on, but you can spin things all kinds of ways. And I remember this group was very, very effective with with a website when uh, uh, they supported Adam Laxalt against Ross Miller, and they set up this absolutely brutal website about Ross Miller. And I think that played a huge role. And then they pivot off of that and they run ads on it. So I don't think this Menendo uh, issue is going away uh, anytime soon. Uh, Riley, you also uh, um, uh, covered the, the Clark County Commission uh, meeting. Uh, uh, this week, and uh, uh, there was some interesting uh, information that came out. Uh, first, let's talk about uh, we should remind people there's two Clark County commissioners who are interested in running for governor. One of them has already announced Steve Sisolak. Um but there was some news about Chris June Kiliani uh, this week to, uh, uh, as well that you came across.
2: Yeah, so Chris June Kiliani has sent handwritten notes uh, painstakingly to all 62 members of the legislature. I don't think Mark Menendez got a note. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I, I saw a picture of it. I called her and just asked her. She said in the letters and to me that you know she's considering running for governor. She wants to talk to people about the various issues that affect them. Um, I, I, she sent them to a couple of like rural Republican senators, which is why it caught my eye. Because you know, why is a Clark County commissioner reaching out to you know the people who represent you know kind of Podunk, Nevada? Um, and she just said, I'm trying to get a sense of the issues, and I think. As you alluded to, I think in your morning flash newsletter and sort of on Twitter, like this is just another step forward to her getting in for a gubernatorial race. Like, I don't think I would write sixty-two handwritten notes to anyone for fun. Uh, I'm this- just wondering.
0: I'm just wondering what good that does, though. Really, I mean, is it? Is, does she think that Ira Hansen's is going to get this letter and say, "Wow, I'm going to support Christian Kalyani"? It's kind of weird, huh?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I think there's probably some, you know, real desire to figure out what's actually going on, but. the the time it takes to to write the letters. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and there is like the political calculus, right? Because Sisolak is really associated with the stadium as we've done polling on. that's super unpopular in the rurals and in the north. Um, As you said, she's meeting with uh, progressive groups with... Uh, Ernie Adler up in Carson City. So. Ernie Adler,
0: former state senator, whose son is now uh, very much enmeshed in the marijuana lo- lobby. But Ernie, she served with Ernie Adler, who's a very progressive. She's meeting with the, with the, with some pro- progressive up there doing meet and greets. She's having some big uh, uh, meet and greet of her own at her own place this weekend. Uh, I, I I gather so she seems to be acting like someone who wants to run, right?
2: Yeah, and you know, uh, there's a lot. I think you know, not to. Same things about Steve Sisolak, but I think there's a lot more like grassroots desire for someone like Chris June Kiliani. She's a lot more left than he is. He's gotten in fights with unions before. He's kind of done his own pro business thing for a long time. He's independently wealthy. She's much more of a liberal firebrand. It hasn't worked out for her in the past when she's tried to run for uh, larger statewide when she ran for mayor of Las Vegas. But, you know, if she runs to the left, it's sort of similar to, I think, Jackie Rosen and Dina Titus in a way where. You'll have a better chance In the primary But I, you just don't know How it's going to Shake out in the general
0: And there was a pretty Astonishing interview This week uh, Speaking of primaries uh, Megan on the on the other side Of, of, of that Where Adam Laxalt Hasn't announced But he's clearly running You have Dan Schwartz The state treasurer who did this uh, interview that Ray Hager, our, our colleague from, from up north, who used to work for the Reno Gazette Journal, still does Nevada newsmakers and posts these blogs, in which Dan Schwartz created the best commercials I think the Democrats could ever help for against Adam Laxalt, right?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think Dan Schwartz has been doing that for a while, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's sort of been, you know, this this kind of joke. He sort of accidentally um, got onto a lot of sort of liberal causes. You know, he was doing a lot of payday loans. Things which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a Republican. Um, You know, he was he was sounding the alarm on Faraday way before. uh, you know, while everyone was clamoring to bring them to the state, um, you know, he, he's just taken a lot of these positions that and ended up kind of being right on them. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he sort of provides this inter- interesting fodder. And it's always interesting when you get a, a release in your inbox from the state Democratic Party, you know, saying, look at look at what Dan Schwartz <laughs> is saying.
0: <laughs> well, exactly, because he's I mean, he is saying essentially what the Democrats have been saying about Adam Oxlap, that he's in the pocket of Sheldon Adelson. And he actually brought Michael Roberson, the likely candidate for uh for, for, for a lieutenant governor who's tethered. Himself uh, to lack salt into that as well, but Schwartz too. I I don't know how you guys interpreted this, uh, but he sounds like someone who's about to get into the race as well, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've known he's interested for a while. I think the question is whether he, you know, takes the leap. um, You know, uh, as far as you know, his his political career goes. I mean, why why not? You know, I don't I don't know that there's a ton of drawback for him doing that, um, and it will certainly make it a little bit harder. I think for. For Laxalt,
0: And he does have some money uh, because he's put money. He he essentially self-financed his race for Congress that he lost. And I believe his state treasurer's race, too. He essentially self-financed. So we can at least put hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we don't know whether he can put more than that. And we know Laxalt's going to have a lot of money. Speaking of a lot of money, uh, uh, O'Reilly, you should tell our listeners about your personal crusade to stop more mall cop movies from being made in Nevada.
2: It's uh, something I do for the public, John. I take no pleasure in doing it. but um, We
0: care here at the Nevada Independent. We do care.
2: Uh, so for those who don't know, Nevada in 2013 approved this program that gives certain qualified uh, film productions. There are going to be films, TV shows, uh, certain shoots. There's like a number of minimums they have to meet. They give them a tax incentive to film in Nevada. The idea was like, we need to attract a film industry here. It's sort of a, more recession-proof industry. It's a way to diversify the economy. We had Nick Cage come to the legislature. I found an old Ed Vogel story in the Review Journal saying he looked like just a normal lobbyist and he lost his movie star looks, which was fun to to dig into. As
0: only Ed could have written, Mm -hmm. may he rest in peace. He was something else. So uh, this was a
2: pilot program that was supposed to run for four years. They were supposed to give it $20 million in each year. And then in 2014, as many people know, we had the Tesla special session, and 70 of that $80 million went to Tesla. So we had this program sort of on ice for a while and then during the legislative session um, they revived it. So now it, it it's funded in kind of perpetuity unless lawmakers change it in a future session. It's $10 million every year for qualified productions. And on Wednesday um, it was sort of like the first step. It's not final approval until the, uh, Steve Hill, the economic development SAR, kind of gives a final thumbs up and they meet all the, the qualifications. But the first two projects submitted their applications in June and they kind of got like the first step to start filming. It's a uh, the new season of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And then it's this independent film based on a Brett Easton Ellis script uh, called Smiley Face Killers. Um, and so it, it, I think it was like one and a half million dollars, essentially, in transferable tax credits they are going to go to the, these two programs. So I took a look into it because I've always found it interesting. Um, you know, Whenever Nick Cage or whatever movie star kind of comes to the legislature, it, it's always interesting. And economists basically, by and large, um, sort of reject film tax credit incentives. They say... It doesn't really, you know, return a lot of investment on the dollar. Um, these film producers can kind of go wherever, so you're kind of forced to live with their whims. And if you ever cut the subsidy, or if you ever think it's not going to work, they'll just pack up and go somewhere else. Um, even states like Louisiana, who have been doing this um, since 1992 and really expanded in 2002, haven't, you know, gotten a ton of bang for their buck. You know, Louisiana is kind of considered the Hollywood of the South, but you know, they've had to kind of pare it back Of as I think every state except for Vermont has balanced budget amendments and lawmakers look at this, you know, six or eight years down the line. And they think, you know, are were we really getting the most um, in the most uh, return on investment that we could? So it was interesting to look at that, especially as Nevada kind of is uh, going against the trend. In 2009, there were 44 states that had this program. There's been seven that have repealed it since then. And a lot of them have just removed funding and kept kind of the, the bare bones in law. So it's interesting that we're going down this path as other states have kind of backed away from it.
0: Yeah, just uh, as I guess if economists say something's not good, like a film tax incentive, or for instance, let me just pull up something hypothetically, a publicly financed stadium, looks like Nevada just is willing to embrace that, right? Yeah. Uh, We go against the economic models.
2: It well, it's hard, too, for lawmakers because what you have for these programs, you can, you can do the stadium as an easy example. But even for film tax credits, you've got union guys. You've got Teamsters. IFC, um They really want this because it helps them out a lot. And that's it's very tangible to see like a movie filming. Like I think when the Bourne movie was filming on the strip, everyone was paying attention to that. And so it's hard to— That was
0: not a good movie, by the way
2: that's your opinion it's it's (laughs)
0: it's, it's not it's no paul blart mall cop one and two i have to tell you
2: yeah um but things like that like the opposition is you know economist from usc or yale or wherever they you know they're telling you things that probably make sense but you don't see that tangible real um benefit in, in kind of questioning the policy aspect so it's come up a lot as we've become more of an incentive-friendly state. And I thought this was just a really good example of um, that kind of conflict between uh, those two sides.
0: What, what what always struck me about this real quickly about the Film Tax Incentive Program is that, uh, you know, if you're going to film something and, and there's a scene in Las Vegas, you know, whether it's Con Air or whether it's Jason Bourne, why do we have to give them incentive to come here? Like they're going to build a faux strip somewhere on a soundstage, they have to come here anyway. Why do we need to give them ins- anyhow? Uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm allowed to give my opinions like that. You, don't, you guys, you guys don't don't, don't have to. But the, I just, the
2: film office did actually have a response to that, which is like some shoots will just go film exteriors on the strip for two days, and then go to New Mexico where they actually get incentives and keep filming there. So, right.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard that one too. Yeah, and they, New Mexico may have. Do you think they have better desert scenes than Nevada as well? Maybe. I don't know. Would
2: Breaking Bad have been the <laughs> yeah. same if it was in Vegas yeah, then, New Mexico.
0: The, the Breaking Bad cuts off all other discussion, right? Yeah. Exactly. And a
2: one final point on that okay. was um, I asked the film office guy, like, do you guys have, like, quality controls, right? Because I think I, one of the movies I got instead of was this movie, Smiley-Faced Killers. Like, I don't know if there's any tourists who are going to want to come to Vegas because of this independent film. And they said, like, you know, we, we, we never really know what's going to be the next hit film. You don't know what's going to get the hangover effect. But the only – Quote unquote quality control that's in state law or in state program is just basically to prevent like pornographic films from applying for these incentives. That otherwise, there's no real, uh, you know, quality control or like pro tourism um sort of rules or guidelines they have to follow
0: is smiley face killers a comedy riley whoa, 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 whoa. what is it exactly they're smiling so maybe, <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly all right let's 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 wrap up by talking about a couple of stories uh that that that, that you guys have coming for the weekend that are pivoting off the whole healthcare care debate megan um you've taken you are taking a deep dive in, in, into the whole issue of medicaid you've you've followed this talk about what you're working on what what the listeners appetites
1: Yes. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I took a look at specifically sort of um the the healthcare bill that was being considered and and what the implications would be could be on Nevada. Um, but this week I attended um a meeting, a medical care advisory committee meeting, and they were talking about. Some of the difficulties that Medicaid patients face now, just with sort of the status quo, um, some of the wait times, uh, managed care organizations are supposed to um, get people into primary care appointments within a week to two weeks. They're supposed to get people into specialist appointments within 30 days, but there are just so few providers in Nevada that's that's not really possible. Um, so I talked to some some hospitals, some physicians, some sort of patient advocacy type groups um, about all of this and sort of what can be done. And it's, it's, a, it's a multi-pronged issue. There's not one easy answer, unfortunately. Fortunately, you know, part of the solution is UNLV's medical school. You know, p- part of it is is directing Medicaid patients to other services that are out there, like federally qualified health clinics, um, trying to connect them more, um, sort of educating the Medicaid population about where to access the healthcare system. Part of the problem is uh, Medicaid patients haven't been able to go to primary care providers, and so they just end up in the ERs, um, which is expensive for the ERs and also, you know, not the place where they're being best served um, and treated on, in an ongoing basis. And that's part of the point of Medicaid expansion is that people have regular access to health care, that they're not just going to the doctor when they're really, really sick. They're getting their conditions under control and managed. And that's the whole point of being uh, getting your health insurance through a managed care organization. They're supposed to sort of prevent um, these types of things and help you with your ongoing conditions. So. Uh,
0: that sounds like a great piece. That's that's going to be on the website this weekend. We're also, I should, I should tell people we're going to have a companion, not exactly a companion piece, but a long op-ed by an economist about uh, healthcare, breaking down the nuts and bolts of how healthcare and healthcare uh, uh, insurance works. So so I hope people will read that. And Riley, uh, 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 you're, you're working on a piece that, that is on the political aspects of this. And a lot of people are asking about Dean Heller, how much trouble is he in? How mad is the base his. Uh, Because of the June primary low turnout, someone like a Danny Tarkanian could pull off what he did against Michael Roberson in the congressional race. And you have a story coming on that, right?
2: Yeah. So uh, this week I went to a Clark County Republican meeting where they elected a new chairman and talked to a few, you know, party diehards about some of their concerns with Heller. Um, My concerns is probably the nicest way I could have put (laughs) what they said. Um, But yeah, just taking a look, I don't think any sitting senator has been defeated in a primary that was elected as opposed to appointed. The ones that were appointed and lost a primary were all in the 40s, so it would be a total, you know, historical anomaly for him. You're talking
0: about in the state of the country. In
2: the state of Uh, Nevada. Right. Um, So just taking a look at sort of the structural advantages that he has going into a primary, and yet he has a lot of really upset Republicans who uh, aren't too happy with how he's kind of handling the whole health care debate.
0: And the, the, the kinds of Republicans we should tell people who go to a Clark County Central Committee meeting are the ones who are th- these are – they're definitely going to vote. I mean th- this is this is going to make – it's very low turnout in June, 40 percent or so I think generally, right?
2: Yeah, and part of the interesting thing is I've talked to Michael McDonald and Carl Bunce. Of, that's the state party chairman and the county party chairman who was just elected on Tuesday. And they're kind of – they're trying to get behind Heller. Like they're not exactly 100 percent happy with him, but I think there is a movement – it's a change for in, in recent times, but the the county parties and state parties are trying to be a little bit more. Um, the, the example they both used was this like the State Democratic Party and what Harry Reid's done with that. Um, sort of built into sort of a everyone's working together type machine as opposed to having a lot of public infighting.
0: It'll be interesting to see how much money they get. I think that'll be the key thing to watch, how much money that Sheldon, Adelson, Steve Wynn, and the others give. All right, that sounds like some great content for the weekend. Uh, that is all the time we have uh, this week for the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think always, so if you have ideas for us, criticism, even praise. Sometimes we like praise. We need praise. Email us at ideas at the nvindie.com, and please check out our site if you haven't already, and We'll hope you tell all your friends the NevadaIndependent.com. Thanks, Riley and Megan for being here. Appreciate it. And as always, many, many thanks to the folks here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. They've been great, helping us out and producing this. And of course, Joey Lovato, our fantastic UNR intern, who makes us all sound, as I like to say, podcast smooth. Do you think we sound podcast smooth? What do you guys think? Uh Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I I, I hope so is the best we can we can we can get. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Ralston We'll see you next week on Indie Matters.
2: Christmas probably? Probably. I was gonna go with like a funny holiday but I couldn't think of one. Arbor Day <sighs> Arbor Day. Earth Day. Earth Day. Earth Day is always a winner.